Book Three, Chapter Seventeen of the Cinema Murder. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. The Cinema Murder by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Book Three, Chapter Seventeen. And after all, nothing happened. Dane's barely veiled threats seemed to vanish like the man himself into thin air. Beatrice, after the breakdown of her one passionate outburst, had become wonderfully meek and tractable. Sylvanus Power, who had received from Elizabeth the message for which he had waited, showed no signs either of disappointment or anger. After the storm which had seemed to be breaking in upon him from every quarter, the days which followed possessed for Philip almost the calm of an Indian summer. He had found something in life at last stronger than his turbulent fears. His whole nature was engrossed by one great atmosphere of deep and wonderful affection. He spent a part of every day with Elizabeth, and the remainder of his time was completely engrossed by the work over which she, too, the presiding genius, pored eagerly. Together they humored many of Beatrice's whims treating her very much as an unexpected protégé, a position with which she seemed entirely content. She made friends with the utmost facility. She wore new clothes with frank and obvious joy. She preened herself before the looking-glass of life, developed a capacity for living and enjoying herself which, under the circumstances, was nothing less than remarkable. And then came the climax of Philip's newfound happiness. His earnest protest had long since been overruled, and certainly no one could have accused him of posing for a single moment as the reluctant bridegroom. The happiness which shone from their two faces seemed to brighten the strangely unecclesiastical-looking apartment in which a cheerful and exceedingly pleasant-looking American divine completed the formalities of their marriage. It was a queer little company who hurried back to Elizabeth's room for tea, Elizabeth and Philip themselves, and Martha Grimes and Beatrice sharing the attentions of Noel Bridges. For an event of such stupendous importance, it was amazing how perfectly matter-of-fact the two persons chiefly concerned were. There was only one moment, just before they started for the theatre, when Elizabeth betrayed the slightest signs of uneasiness. "'I sent a telegram, Philip,' she said, "'to Sylvanus Power. I thought I had better. This is his answer.' Philip read the few typewritten words on the little slip of paper. "'You will hear from me within twenty-four hours.' Philip frowned a little as he handed it back. It was dated from Washington. "'I think,' Elizabeth faltered, "'he might have sent his good wishes at any rate.' Philip laughed confidently. "'We have nothing to fear,' he declared confidently, "'from Sylvanus Power.' "'Nor from anyone else in the world,' Elizabeth murmured fervently. Then followed the wonderful evening. Philip found Beatrice alone in the stage-box when he returned from taking Elizabeth to her dressing-room. "'Where's Martha?' he asked. "'Faithless,' Beatrice replied. "'She is in the stalls down there with a the young man from the box-office. "'She said you'd understand.' 
A serious affair? Philip ventured. Beatrice nodded. They are engaged. I had tea with them yesterday. We shall have to do something for you, Beatrice, soon, he remarked cheerfully. A very rare gravity settled for a moment upon her face. I wonder, Philip, she said simply. I thought a little time ago it would be easy enough to care for the right sort of person. Perhaps I am not really quite so rotten as I thought I was. Here comes Elizabeth. Let's watch her. They both leaned a little forward in the box, Philip in a state of beatific wonder which turned soon to amazement when, at Elizabeth's first appearance, the house suddenly rose and a torrent of applause broke out from the floor to the ceiling. Elizabeth for a moment seemed dumbfounded. The fact that the news of what had happened that afternoon could so soon have become public property had not occurred to either her or Philip. Then a sudden smile of comprehension broke across her face. With understanding, however, came a momentary embarrassment. She looked a little pathetically at the great audience, then laughed and glanced at Philip, seated now well back in the box. Many of them followed her gaze, and the applause broke out again. Then there was silence. She paused before she spoke the first words of her part. Thank you so much, she said quietly. It was a queer little episode. Beatrice gripped Philip's hand as she drew her chair back to his. There were tears in her eyes. How they love her, these people! And fancy their knowing about it, Philip, already. You ought to have shown yourself as the happy bridegroom. They were all looking up here. I wonder why men are so shy. I'm glad I have my new frock on. Fancy being married only a few hours ago. Tell me how you are feeling, can't you, Philip? You sit there looking like a sphinx. You are happy, aren't you? Happier, I think, than any man has a right to be, he answered, his eyes watching Elizabeth's every movement. As the play proceeded, his silence only deepened. He went behind at the end of each act and spent a few stolen moments with Elizabeth. Life was a marvelous thing indeed. Every pulse and nerve in his body was tingling with happiness. And yet, as he lingered for a moment in the vestibule of the theater before going back to his box at the commencement of the last act, he felt once more that terrible wave of depression, the ghostly uprising of his old terrors even in this supreme moment. He looked down from the panorama of flaring sky signs into the faces of the passers-by along the crowded pavement. He had a sudden fancy that Dane was there, watching. His heart beat fiercely as he stood, almost transfixed, scanning eagerly every strange face. Then the bell rang behind him. He set his teeth and turned away. In less than half an hour the play would be over. They would be on their way home. He found the box door open, and the box itself, to his surprise, empty. There was no sign anywhere of Beatrice. He waited for a little time. Then he rang the bell for the attendant, but could hear no news of her. His uneasiness increased as the curtain at last fell, and she had not returned. He hurried round to the back, but Elizabeth, when he told her, only smiled. 
"'Why, there's nothing to worry about, dear,' she said. "'Beatrice can take care of herself. "'Perhaps she thought it more tactful to hurry on home tonight. "'She is really just as kind-hearted as she can be, you know, Philip, "'underneath all that pent-up passionate desire "'for just a small share of the good things of life. "'She has wasted so much of herself in longings. "'Poor child!' I sometimes wonder that she is as level-headed as she seems to be. Now I am ready. They passed down the corridor amidst a little chorus of good nights, and stepped into the automobile which was waiting. As it glided off, she suddenly came closer to him. Philip, she whispered, it's true, isn't it? Put your arms around me. You are driving me home. Say it's true. Elizabeth sat up presently, a little dazed. Her fingers were still gripping Philip's almost fiercely. The automobile had stopped. "'I haven't the least idea where we are,' she murmured. "'And I forgot to tell you,' he laughed as he helped her out. "'I took the suite below mine by the week. There are two or three rooms, and an extra one for Beatrice. Of course, it's small, but then with this London idea before us—' "'Such extravagance!' she interrupted. "'Your own rooms would have done quite nicely, "'only it is a luxury to have a place for Phoebe. "'I hope Beatrice won't have gone to bed.' "'I am sure she won't,' he replied. "'She has done all the arranging for me, "'she and Phoebe together.' "'They crossed the pavement and entered the lift. "'The attendant grinned broadly as he stopped at the eighth floor,' and held out his hand for the tip for which Philip had been fumbling. The door of the suite was opened before they could reach the bell. Elizabeth's maid, Phoebe, came toward to take her mistress's cloak, and the floor valet was there to relieve Philip of his overcoat. A waiter was hovering in the background. "'Supper is served in the dining-room, sir,' he announced. "'Shall I open the wine?' Philip nodded and showed Elizabeth over the little flat, finally ushering her into the small round dining-room. "'It's perfectly delightful,' she declared. "'But we don't need nearly so much room, Philip. What a dear little dining-table, and what a delicious supper! Everything I like best in the world, from pâté de foie gras to cold asparagus. You are a dear!' The waiter disappeared with a little bow. They were alone at last. She held his hands tightly. She was trembling. The forced composure of the last few minutes seemed to have left her. I am silly, she faltered. But the servants and everything, they won't come back, will they? He laughed as he patted her hand. We shan't see another soul, dear, he assured her. She laid her cheek against his. "'How hot your face feels!' she exclaimed. "'Throw open the window, do. I shan't feel it.' He obeyed her at once. The roar of the city, all its harshness muffled, came to them in a somber, almost melodious undernote. She rested her hands upon his shoulder. "'What children we are!' she murmured. "'Now it's you who are trembling.' "'Sit down, please. You've been so brave these last few days.' "'It was just for a moment,' he told her. "'It seems too wonderful. I had a sudden impulse of terror, lest it should all be snatched away.' She laughed easily. 
"'I don't think there's any fear of that, dear,' she said. "'Perhaps?' There was a little knock at the door. Philip, who had been holding Elizabeth's chair, stood as though transfixed. Elizabeth gripped at the side of the table. It was some few seconds before either of them spoke. "'It is perhaps Beatrice,' Elizabeth faltered. The knock was repeated. Philip drew a little breath. "'Come in,' he invited. The door opened slowly towards them and closed again. It was Mr. Dane who had entered. From outside they caught a momentary glimpse of another man, waiting. Mr. Dane took off his hat. For a man with so expressionless a countenance, he was looking considerably perturbed. "'Miss Dalston,' he said, "'I am very sorry, believe me, to intrude.' I only heard of your marriage an hour ago. I wish I could have prevented it. Prevented it? Elizabeth repeated. What do you mean? I think that Mr. Philip Romilly could explain, Dane continued, turning towards Philip. I am sorry, but I have received an imperative cable from Scotland Yard, and it is my duty to arrest you, Philip Romilly, and to hold you pending the arrival of a special police mission from England. I am bound to take note of anything you may say, so I beg of you not to ask me any particulars as to the charge. The color slowly faded from Elizabeth's cheeks. She had risen to her feet and was gripping the mantelpiece for support. Philip, however, was perfectly calm. He poured out a glass of water and held it to her lips. "'Drink this, dear,' he begged, "'and don't be alarmed. It sounds very terrible, but believe me, there is nothing to be feared.' He swung suddenly round to Dane. His voice shook with passion. "'You've kept me under observation,' he cried, "'all this time. I haven't attempted to escape. I haven't moved from New York.' I haven't the slightest intention of doing so until this thing is cleared up. Can't you take my parole? Can't you leave me alone until they come from England?' 